Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Investigative journalist Bob Henley was last on our show on February 3rd, two weeks after January 20th, when the U.S. and South Korea each confirmed their first cases of the coronavirus. About two weeks before that, in the first week of the year, the New York Times ran a story about China's identification of a, quote, new virus causing pneumonia-like illness, but the paper reported it didn't appear to be readily spread by humans. Two and a half months ago, COVID-19 was barely a blip on the radar, and now state and local governments have closed schools, shut down businesses, and are imposing increasingly strict limits on our movements. Bob Henley has been following the developing crisis from his vantage point of covering national local politics, economics, and policy for public radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations. And I'm very pleased that he's joining us once again on our show. Welcome back, Bob. Having me, we both sound remote but engaged. Yeah, well, I am calling from my home, and, I, and you're at your home. Yes, in Neptune, a planet away. When we talked early in February, we devoted just a minute or two to the coronavirus, and now it's the number one story with people around the world worrying about how long the pandemic may last and whether it will drive the world economy into depression. In your career in journalism, have you seen a crisis develop this rapidly? I have not. How well do you think the... uh, longer answer? (laughs) No, no, it's okay. How well do you think uh, news organizations are doing on covering the story? I think that what we're seeing is, uh, like with everything else, uh, uh, the things that we've been doing for the you know decades are coming up short in a significant way. Uh, you know, I I think we've lost by some estimates 47 percent, half of the local journalist workforce in the last. 15 some odd years, you know, everything that's rotten about capitalism is manifesting itself. Uh, When you base your entire society on the accumulation of money and profits, uh, you're going to come up short for things like surgical masks and 95 masks and ventilators. Go figure. In the midst of all the coverage, is there anything that you think is being neglected? Well, I would say that, um, I would say it's not so much neglected, but it's uh, the problem is that because of the dying off of local media, uh, with the exception of institutions like BAI and the chief leader, um, what's happening is the people are looking at a nationally based message. So you'll see um, our chief nincompoop in, in, in the White House who really doesn't have a grasp of the circumstance I'm speaking of uh, our president um, providing I was wondering poor information right providing poor information and uh, so this is a crisis that is rooted of course intimately right it's in our homes it's in our it's in our neighborhood and so what's happened is we're really actually seeing in real time a second American revolution in the sense that, uh, the piece I did for Salon refers to revolution by pandemic. We're reorganizing society in real time so that now what is really happening is that the governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo, 
who I've had issues with, as you know, as his style of politics, but right now is filling a void and working in collaboration with the uh, governors of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, um, Governor Lamont of Connecticut, and the governor from Delaware, who I, I who I haven't, uh, whose name escapes me, and they are actually fashioning a coordinated response, almost along the signs I think the author Sales referred to a bioregion. You're seeing this mid-Atlantic region working to deal with the present danger that their local populations facing, while a federal government that is just so well-funded, is disconnected from the circumstance of the people in a very real and dangerous way. And so we see this health crisis uh, emerging dramatically. Uh, we have this kind of split-screen reality where the, the governor of New York is addressing us on a daily basis, and I will say that these dispatches are disciplined. Uh, in the sense that they provide information, they provide an opportunity for reporters who are generally well-prepared to ask questions. They have within them a sense of what challenges there are ahead for us in, in the short term. And then there's usually a discussion about what's happening from a psychosocial standpoint, and then a sense of uh, measuring where we are and where we need to be. That's clarity, and that's leadership. Uh, we're not seeing that from Washington. We see those press conferences, which are so hyped and given so much airtime by the national networks. And the degree to which we're distracted by that and are not about the business of reinventing our public health and our, even our relationships with each other uh, is, uh, means that we're not responding as effectively as we might. So it's a distraction, if you will. When the president... When the president was planning his news conference this past Sunday, CNN reports that he told aides that he wanted to be at microphone during optimal viewing hours. So he's uh, framing all of this through how he is perceived? Right. Well, I, exactly. Well, that's the feedback loop. And so what's happened, and this is the most dangerous turn of it, has been over the last uh, 28 hours where the virulent narcissism um, has really just gone ballistic with this decision uh, where he's, you know, he's talking, talking with the idea that he wants to bring the country out of this uh, social distancing, which, by the way, he has yet to actually universally declare, uh, because uh, uh, Lloyd Blankstein from uh, Goldman Sachs uh, has raising the concern that this cure could be worse than the disease. And we're getting to see this kind of Malthusian narrative where, well, hey, well, one or two percent of the population is a small price to pay for an ever-expanding economy. I mean, and what's happening is, is that the, the problem I think the media has, particularly those that are in the corporate milieu, if you will, they don't understand how fundamentally this has reorganized society. So the hedge fund managers and the great titans of industry are just not as important as the person bringing you your pizza. So, uh, or the person who's a healthcare worker or the transit worker who's taking you to where you need to go. And so society has been reordered in a very uh, radical way just by the nature of this biological threat. Now, new, many of our listeners are in New York City, which is being called the COVID-19's epicenter in the United States. 
Uh, New York State has over 25,000 cases of the virus, nearly 7% of the global population total. You mentioned that you're in Neptune, New Jersey. What's it like there? It's uh, it's starting to percolate in the sense that you're seeing um, in Monmouth County uh, singular cases, in some cases dozens. Uh, New Jersey is, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, in the top 10, certainly, of states. Um, what you do have here is 566 municip- 565 municipalities, 21 counties. And so what's fascinating and, and something to, uh, to take to heart is that throughout the country, um, I'm in touch with this vast network of public unions and private sector unions. They're often acting as this important check in terms of things like making sure that employees have personal protective equipment, whether that be in the case of a healthcare professional, the N95 mask or the surgical mask or the gowns. And that uh, because this is really about keeping workers safe, keeping their families safe, and by extension, the public health in as best condition as we can have it. And one of the concerns that I've seen is that there can be pressure. Uh, it's a political, it's our, you know, we live in a political world, and so, of course, politics enters into it. You can see a situation where there's a tremendous pressure to downgrade that response for expedience. And I'll give you an example of one that played out. I wrote about it, I guess, two weeks ago in Salon. Um, there were some flight attendants from an American Airlines crew that took an individual from New York. People probably saw this in the Daily News. And this individual had a test uh, pending, um, and then uh, once uh, this person landed in West Palm Beach, turned on his phone, and boom, he found out that he was positive. And he he did, I guess, the righteous thing and informed the crew that he indeed was positive. Perhaps he wanted to have special seating to get out of the plane quickly. Either way, he was escorted out uh, with uh, medical professionals and uh, this was done in an, a very astute and adroit way by the flight staff. Now, what's interesting is at that point, middle managers uh, had instructed the union flight crew that they needed to get back into revenue service because, after all, they were asymptomatic, which meant they weren't contagious. Now, these individuals who were employees smarter than middle management, and I'm sure most of our listeners have experienced that moment where you find out you're smarter than your superior. Uh, decided as a patriotic act and one of self uh, self preservation, they would not uh, take that order, and so they withstood and they did not get on the plane. And this created a situation where the union uh, bought them time. And Governor Cuomo and Senator Schumer called JetBlue, and so did the newspapers. And these folks were able to get the two weeks of paid care of paid leave, if you will, to be able to observe self-quarantine. That kind of thing is playing out across America. I don't think you're hearing about that on the corporate news media. Because New Jersey, again, what we're, New, New Jersey has 200,000 public employees and New York State has 600,000. Uh, some of them are first responders, aren't they? And aren't there civil service must-show jobs or what are called essential employees? Well, and that's exactly what's turned the whole world upside down. I mean, one of the things is that for most people, uh, our daily existence is like a lazy Susan. It, it turns around. We're not really clear how it occurs. But there, the garbage disappears. 
and then we pick up the can. We turn on the tap, and the water goes through, and flush the toilet, and the detritus disappears. Well, now this is like, imagine we're all getting to look under the kitchen sink, Leonard. We're getting to see exactly how this all works. And I think that's uplifting from the standpoint of being an advocate for public and private unions. Now, uh, we're talking about even things like New York Police Department tow truck drivers, not right, well, just the, right. the obvious ones. Right. Well, this was, and this was something, uh, and I got to say, what outstanding leadership uh, from the, the people that are doing the, all these tasks, that they're showing up for work. And the unions that represent them, Joe Puglio, Local 983 at District Council 37, part of the ASME configuration in New York City. Um, there was a situation where people, uh, you know, they leave their cars, and in a normal situation, that could be a bad thing. But it's something like this, where you want to have clear access to your emergency uh, uh, emergency rooms, and you want to have flow of traffic for fire engines and the rest. We have, you know, several hundred individuals whose job it is to go up and uh, remove the car, and they do it in a way, and this is kind of interesting, to not damage the undercarriage. Um, and they will use a jimmy to get inside the car. In one case we had, uh, Joe Puglia was doing advocacy work for a member who did this, got the car up there without doing damage to it, and then it turned out that he had entered a car of someone that was coronavirus positive, and now his life is upside down. So this is the kind of thing playing out across the United States. So I do think that the problem with the media is they need more of these stories. We need to get smarter much faster so people understand what's at risk, and then we can do a better job helping each other accomplish what's required. I'm speaking with Bob Henley on Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Bob, despite all of its issues, New York City has an enormous infrastructure that might facilitate the response of the virus, most notably its world-leading medical facilities. But what about nearby areas outside the city and the rural areas where there are far fewer hospitals, fewer markets, and more poorly funded governments? Well, that is the kind of challenge we're facing because uh, one of the things that happens is, I mean, the areas that are more rural have density on their side in the sense that uh, they have a little bit more time. Um, the issue about oh. infrastructure and uh, mutual aid is going to present itself, particularly in uh, communities where these services are provided by volunteers, right? I mean, it's not uncommon for uh, New York City firefighter cops or civil servants uh, to volunteer at their where they live, right, in, in, in the counties like Rockland or Orange or Nassau. So, uh, and this is something that we're going to have to do in real time is because this is a challenge on the scale of World War II in terms of civil defense. In this case, it's an invisible uh, virulent pandemic as opposed to Nazis. Uh, but the risk is there. And so you're correct that I would anticipate the big challenge is going to be in the suburban areas that are already on a good day had trouble attracting volunteers. Uh, particularly for their ambulance corps and the rest. Um, and so that is, that is, that's that's going to be a big challenge. And I haven't seen much reporting on it, um, but it w I, I would imagine it's something where there's going to need to be um, a call to action to try to offer the critical support for these, uh, uh, for these, uh, for this infrastructure.
in that salon article that you mentioned earlier, the one that you've called Revolution by Pandemic, uh, you noted that wealthy elites have, quote, structured their lives around pre-coronavirus social distancing behind the gated walls of privilege that won't protect them now. Why? Because a virus doesn't care how wealthy you are? Isn't can, it more yeah, dangerous exactly. for, for homeless people? Well, the thing is, I mean, you can speak in degrees here. So certainly there's no doubt that um, if you think that a disease strikes the body or strikes the population as that body or that population lived. And so there's no doubt that do the, well, I guess, three to 4,000 unsheltered homeless folks and the 65,000 nominally shelter insecure people, are they at a higher risk? Absolutely. But it is something where uh, you can't, and we're seeing sad examples of it, right? People who are very famous are coming down with it. This is something that it doesn't know. It's, your gated community is not going to keep you safe from it. And so if you're engaged with society in any way, even in an elite capacity, your chauffeur or the person that provides all your needs and comforts, your masseuse, your daily planner, whoever it is, uh, in the hierarchy of uh, our, our circumstance, will is a potential that, uh, you know, a place that you could get exposed. So it really requires a, a new algebra uh, that's going to be based on relationship. And, I mean, I just couldn't help but to see, I don't know if you caught, did you catch uh, Cuomo's daily briefing today? Yes. Oh, not today. Right. No. So, so today, I mean, the... What's happened is the curve has really gone up much steeper than was expected. So the rate of infection is going um, at, at an elevated level. And so the crisis is going to be upon us sooner than we thought. That's clear by looking at the numbers. And today, Cuomo's observation was that New York City is going to experience this wave first. And so that what he suggested, and I think it's a good rule of thumb, is to be informed by the science and notice that you throw all your resources where, where this is uh, a problem first. And then as it goes through, because we can see as a predictor that San Francisco, California, Washington, uh, Illinois, those states that are uh, have growth, but nothing on the scale of New York. I mean, New York's growth is 10 times that of what we've seen in other areas. So the thought would be here to triage, just like you triage patients, to triage states. And so that kind of rational application is is what's required and there's a sense of urgency but not panic uh, in terms of what governor cuomo is uh, suggesting but it really is incumbent now for for the states municipalities and counties to develop the cohesion and discipline that the federal government lacks would it be nice if it was different but it's not it's really going to be left up to um the people to lead the leaders surprise surprise in that Salon article, you wrote that, and I'm quoting, as it turns out, American capitalism doesn't hold up all that well under the stresses and strains of a virulent pandemic. In the face of the coronavirus, that stingy real-time delivery dictum taught in business school to guide how we deploy labor and distribute stuff can be a recipe for needlessly high body counts and, and wealth destruction on the scale of the Great Depression. And even during the Depression, uh, we we wound up with the New Deal, and you note that uh, FDR's New Deal left out people of color. Right, right, right. Other than that, it was a great idea. Uh, 
there is. I mean, that's the thing about this is this generation is uh, the, the folks on the planet right now in this country at this point are presented with this opportunity to get a, a number of things right. And and one of the things that happened um, while the New Deal did lift up uh, all matter of working class people, there was a Faustian bargain that uh, FDR had to make because of the politics of the time with the Dixiecrats, who were very much wanted to try to continue uh, – uh, the Jim Crow. And so what they did is they exempted uh, agricultural workers and domestic workers from wage and hour protection. That was a big win for the segregationists in the South. Similarly, let's scroll forward to 2008, 2009, President Bush, President Obama. We have the catastrophic uh, pillage and rape uh, by Wall Street of Martin Luther King Boulevard and Main Street, resulting in record levels of foreclosure. Rather than save the people living on those streets in those circumstances, they saved the banks and turned over to them some $20 trillion of wealth that several generations of Americans, working-class folks, had accumulated. They're living large. And then we had, I guess, the big result of this so-called recovery was 40% of American families couldn't scratch together $400 unless they borrowed it. That is the setting within which we are in this current pandemic. So all of these things are past examples of how things didn't work out, and now we have an opportunity to make it right. As I said, revolution by pandemic. Haven't there been some reports of the wealthy and famous getting privileged access to testing or that some wealthy individuals have tried to buy ventilators for themselves, even though they may never need them? Well, I have no doubt the ingenuity of the 0.001% to find a way to edge out the rest of humanity for their own benefit. Uh, and yes, I have seen those reports. Um, I mean, I do think that it's it's instructive to go back to, you know, World War II, and unfortunately we don't have a whole lot of people around um, that recall that. But And I wasn't around, but certainly if you had robust conversations with your parents or grandparents, you, you heard about uh, rationing cards, right? You heard about that. Remember? Well, I yes. mean, Leonard, you were. were yeah, right. I was so, alive at the time. Right. And so, I mean, uh, I think that one of the things that happened is the way the country went to war, they understood they had to have a sense of shared sacrifice and equity. And so what they did is designed this system for distribution of certain things like sugar and other vitals like gasoline based on the size of your household. Go figure not on how much money you had, but on how many human beings were in your house, with your grandma, with their toddlers. And that became the basis upon which you had access to certain kinds of vital products. Sounds like social democracy, even a little communist, doesn't it? Well, that sort of thing isn't happening here. Some wealthy members of Congress, like Senators Richard Burr and Kathy Leffler, <laughs> unloaded up unloaded millions of dollars in stock after they'd received a private briefing on the coronavirus. <laughs> and then they went out and told the public there was nothing to worry about. Right. And listen, and they just wrote themselves without one stroke, the first line of their obituary. <laughs> so, and you're exactly right. That is the kind of stuff, you know, these people when presented with, and this is how we get the reference of our character. When you're presented with this existential choice of life of your money, and you pause to call your stockbroker, well, you've made your decision already, haven't you?
it has been predicted that the unemployment rate will reach 30%, and Democrats and Republicans are debating a $2 trillion stimulus plan. Uh, they keep on saying they're close, but then uh, there's a lot of name calling. Yeah, I've been following that, and it is. it looks like, um, from the latest I can see, is that the intrigue is that um, you have uh, President Trump sending out Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, to interact with Speaker Pelosi and uh, uh, Senator Schumer and Mitch McConnell. And so the first couple of drafts that the Republicans, they went through the usual playbook, right? It's what they had on the shelf. Save capital, save capital formation. It's very simple. It doesn't take a lot of time. They always have it. You know, $500 billion to help out business, and the president will oversee which businesses get it. Surprise, surprise, that didn't move. It got stymied. And so now there's a conversation about actually trying to get, this is maybe radical for the United States, especially for the federal government, to get the money to create continuity of enterprise. What do I mean by that? I mean that you keep people working in these various jobs so that you don't collapse the industry because it will be much more expensive to disperse the people that work in the hotels, that work in the airlines, than to use those systems as a way of getting to these individuals, whatever percentage of pay you want to work out, and also keep them in their health care. The thing you don't want to do is for all the wheels to come off the bus at the same time and have to chase them into the uh, scrub along the highway. Weren't the Republicans concerned about debt when Barack Obama proposed stimulus spending during the Great Recession? Uh, although his stimulus largely went to banks and companies, much as Republicans would like this new stimulus plan to do. It's the same old, same old. And, you know, you'd like to see some originality, but it's exactly the same thing. What they're trying to do is take care of their friends. It's really all they know how to do. I mean, you saw it with the congressman up there in New York State. It was it Cox, whatever his name is, who was presented with information about a, a drug that his company had invested in and it failed the trial. All he had time to do was call his family, get them out from underneath what was happening. This is, I mean, it's a great shakeout. You know that? It really is. It's something that gives you a sense where we can see just who these people are. And then they become self-evident. And so, you know, that's the key thing. I mean, the, the important thing, though, is also to, at the same time, uplift people that are uh, working to make a difference and are trying to head us into the right direction. And then also for ourselves to be animated, to actualize, to not just sit in their houses but to find a way that we can make a difference, right? This is the call. This is what's required. The subway ridership has dropped 60% here in the city, and the MTA is seeking a $4 billion bailout. How likely is it that the president and the Republicans will come through on that? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I had, you know, I saw them burning down the municipal bond market like two weeks ago. And I was kind of like, I tweeted like, and tried to get some, you know, buy-in from, uh, you know, a very famous economist to just, you know, close the markets. I, I think that was a mistake. I think they should have had a 30-day bank holiday. They still might. At that point, who knows what will be left. But uh, that's part of the problem. People may not know this, but we just, maybe should just explain a little bit about public finance. Um your local, state, and county governments have these municipal bonds, and that's how they build things, and that's how they fund 
uh, not so much their operations, but the physical building. And, and this includes hospitals, colleges, you know, all the things that are part of um, civil society. And so these bonds enjoy uh, tax-exempt status. So if you've got a whole bunch of cash you've made and you want to have it continue to generate interest without having to pay taxes so much, well, then you go to your municipal bonds. Well, what's been happening is they've been heading for the exit is anybody who's got any kind of uh, bearer bonds or anything kicking around in the attic, they want to sell them and turn it into cash. This is a kind of illiquid market, so it's created a kind of lack of confidence. So they definitely need to uh, backstop, and I think the Federal Reserve has started to buy some of these uh, municipal bonds. But this is critical because the thing that is taking a tremendous heat right now is our, our hospitals, right? And a lot of that is this uh, is in these bonds. And so we need to backstop that right now and stop the bleeding. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I'm speaking with Bob Henley. song was composed, nobody imagined the kind of bad news that we would have now. But from late February into March, Fox News hosts claimed that the real story was uh, a plot against the president by the Democrats and the news media. Is there any evidence of how Fox viewers reacted to claims that it's a Democratic hoax? I think there's been a lot of reporting on this. There was some good uh... Uh, ben Smith, I think, from the Times had a really a good piece on this. It looked at the evolution of the way that uh, Fox reacted. Uh, but it's not, you know, in the right wing, you have like Dr. Savage, who was taking a, who, who knew this was a real thing that was going on. He's an educated person with a science background, although he has, you know, really right wing Neanderthal racist views. Uh, it wasn't a monolith. And so you have Tucker Carlson. Uh, uh, saying it's you know something within the framework that we considered sensible in terms of the risk that was presented. On the other but, hand, uh, Kennedy, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, and a whole absolutely. bunch of others sure. saying and, the and, opposite. And actually, well, and actually, and, and if you look at the, and this goes to why, and this means self-serving, why it's so important to support BAI, and this this evident crisis should make it even more apparent. In my lifetime, and this is something I'm 64, and so. When I started as a reporter 17, when I was 17 in, in Bergen County, well, I covered my local municipal government, and there were actually three other adults who drove to the meetings who, were, who supported their families by being local reporters, Leonard. And that entire architecture is gone. Um, a good friend of mine, Doug Doyle, uh, who's a, a 
the news director at WBGO, describes a story where when he was working in New Jersey, more down at the shore, he was a news director for a commercial radio station, which at one time, commercial radio stations, local stations, had an obligation to provide news and information. And that meant that someone would go out and would go to the meetings, would cover the local, uh, and it's something like this, it's essential, right? And, and Doug described to me how proud he was to build up this great news department. And then uh, eventually the clear channels of the world bought up all the stations. And at one point, radio stations, commercial radio stations across the country, top 40 stations, would actually embarrass newspapers. There was competition. I'm old enough to remember such a thing. Competition for news, actual information people could use to save their lives. Uh, that disappeared. And at one point, he described to me the irony that a local community that his radio station had served uh, was unaware of a tornado that was coming because the conglomerate was now piping in weather from Southern California where things were fine. Well, this we, is what you get. Folks. We just did a show on the tabloid war between the New York Daily News and the Post, and uh, both of those newspapers have been largely crippled by that war and not covering the news the way they did in the past. Right, exactly. Now, polling indicates that Republicans are significantly less concerned about the pandemic than Democrats, and fewer Republicans are even concerned less than they were just a month ago. Is that because of the, do you think, because of the administration's uh, uh, reassurance? I think that, um, again, to, uh, I look for examples, maybe it's the optimist in me, but you see Governor Hogan, who's head of the National Governors Association, who's a Republican, um, very much aligned with Governor Cuomo and the other governors, because they actually have a sense of responsibility for specific people. And uh, I think that you're going to see, as this crisis rolls out, this brutal reality is is going to change the politics already is as people have to respond to the communities for which they have regard and affection if you're the president of the united states that's a very abstract notion if you're the mayor of a specific community you know a lot in block number and if you're a governor you know a county and that's what matters now is a sense of granular obligation to a particular place and particular people does policy on the pandemic get filtered through the lens of the Trump re-election campaign? Are Democrats weighing their moves in, in light of the upcoming election? Well, I, I think that, boy, that's, that's complicated. Break that down a little bit. So if we talk about how it came to be our national uh, moment, this crucible we're in, uh, it is a consequence of certainly the downplaying of the uh, entire uh, challenge by the president very early on. Um, I mean, I'm happy to some degree that you and I even talked about it when we did, right? I mean, that's ahead of the news wave. Uh, certainly not as pressing as I'd like to have been, hopefully, you know, but well, we didn't if know. you look at, right, right, but we did at least it was on our radar. But uh, December 30th was the first thing in China. Then we saw in January there was some discussion. January 17th, the CDC went with fairly detailed information. So the system we do know from very good reporting, um, I think by Axios and maybe even Politico, that um, 
the Obama administration as part of the table talk transition with the Trump administration went through a discussion about the potential for a pandemic. There was an awareness as at the geek level where people think about these glorious things that we were due since the last time we were challenged this way was in 1918. So there's no doubt that certainly his, his concern about re-election and then the status of the markets drove the way he wanted to uh, roll this out. And as we've seen with everything, he said, you know, it's like talk about the statement against interest. He said and declared when there was that cruise ship that was uh, in this limbo uh, offshore that he didn't want to bring those folks ashore because he liked the way the numbers were. You know, my wife is in corporate compliance, and she laughed at that one because that's exactly the problem with the way America has been managed, is that we have been bowing down to the altar of, I don't like the way the numbers are. So there's a disconnect between how we're being led and the circumstances we actually encounter day to day. This happens throughout every enterprise in America, and that's why I say it's been upended by this pandemic. Apparently, Democrats are debating whether to show support for the president or to condemn his spin and mistakes. Why, what do you think would be more effective politically or in terms of fighting the pandemic? Should they really go after him? Well, I, I think that, um, and this is where I guess it depends on where you are. If you are the governor of New York uh, or the mayor of New York City and you've now seen a science fiction-like overnight expansion of this deadly virus, um, you have to exercise a very graceful Tai Chi that on one hand affirms anything that's happened that in any way is heading in the right direction while reserving your criticism for the things that are absolutely need to be countered. And so that's why ad hominem attacks uh, that make you feel good are done to score points politically probably are not a good idea. What's a good example of what I'm talking about? When the president opened up one of his press conferences referring it to the Chinese flu, that you have to check right away and you have to be clear about it. Why? Not because it is ignorant and racist. But it also is going to hamper us in real time to develop the uh, collective response and the diplomatic response necessary to fight this on a multilateral front. So that's that's how I would figure that. So, for instance, when you see um, you pick the thing when the president has a press conference and he's and he has someone that he presents that is. Um, you know, reasonable and uh, like Dr. Fauci, then you, you, you affirm that. And then you do. It's not that you stop criticizing, but you criticize when, like now, like the, the governor today, and when I think will be reviewed historically as one of the best uh, extemporaneous speeches, assuming that it was spontaneous, uh, when the president talked about that we needed to start dialing back our response in terms of our, dis, our discipline, social distancing and that we needed to get the economy back to work, accepting this, this zero-sum game that we had to, I guess, basically the subtext is we had to reconcile to losing 1% of our population. And so the governor, Cuomo, took that on directly, and that's, that's when moral leadership's uh, required, and you have to take a risk of making him angry because his insanity puts the country at risk. No. Has Biden directed any of his comments to Trump and and have either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren commented, especially 
considering that they have advocated major changes in our health care system? Well, this, this gets me back to something that uh, just I, I hate to beat up on Tom Perez, but uh, one of the big mistakes the DNC made was to go through with that debate that happened, I think it was two Sundays ago. And that was where they had this uh, situation where it was Biden and Senator Sanders and some people from uh, the news media uh, and they went and did their normal debate, disconnected from the circumstances of the people they were addressing. That's never good in politics. And so what you saw there was uh, they went and reverted back to script, where Senator Sanders was rightfully trying to hold uh, Vice President Biden accountable for all his uh, all of his uh, misplaced and and and, 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 and and you know the votes in Iraq and the rest of it about the war in Iraq. And then you had Joe Biden trying to hold Senator Sanders accountable for whatever he said about Castro. And then, you know, I remember feeling like I had to turn the TV off when Biden was talking about um, the need for a, a super fast train in California. At that point, I was worried about my grandson. I was worried, like so many Americans are, about this new algebra, which one of my kids could be with which one of my in-laws and my extended family and where we were going to get milk the next. I mean, that was really malpractice of political science. And Joe so Biden cited the they, larger number of cases in Italy as evidence that a national health service or a single payer system might not work. Is uh, oh, the system the reason that Italy has been so badly affected? Well, listen, can I tell you, I'm so glad that you give me a chance to give the answer Senator Sanders. Had he been more nimble, should have given, <laughs> which is to point out to South Korea soldiering through uh, South Korea happens to be, I believe that they're not a Marxist front. They love capitalism. Um, they are very successful at capitalism, and yet they have a uh, public health system, and they have a sense of uh, – but what they have there, which is very different, Professor Wolf pointed this out to me, Rick Wolf pointed this out, that in Korea, uh, uh, South Korea, the good Korea, um, you have – private sector and public sector. And don't you know, the private sector, those corporate people that are fabulously wealthy, have a sense of social obligation. Isn't that just stunning? That is to say, as Professor Wolf pointed out, they would subordinate their profit motive, albeit just for a second, so the country could come up with a comprehensive response, which they did, and it appears did so successfully. So that's how Senator Sanders should have answered that stupid question, from Vice President Biden. I mean, I actually think the two Senator Sanders I have seen a uh, high profile working his uh, his network of influence to make sure that there is a uh, a bottom up kind of response to this crisis. And the same thing's true for Senator Warren. I have not seen. I've seen more of Ron Klain, who is a very competent, capable official who worked with the Ebola czar. Um, and was uh, an aide to Vice President Biden. Uh, but in general, Biden has kind of been missing in action. Now, President Trump characterized himself as a wartime president. Could that gain traction and, and win over voters, especially since he dodged serving in Vietnam, although he says he knows more about ISIS than the generals? Right. <laughs> I think he steps on his own message. So, I mean, that's the problem. See, and, and this is when you have someone with a significant personality disorder who is the ruler of the leader of the free world, this is going to crop up. So he's evolved some mythopoetic around the idea that he's a wartime general. 
And then orders an all clear just 48 hours later. He steps in his own narrative, very bad from a marketing standpoint. He's telling us that he's going to marshal wartime resources, but then he takes it all back when he's afraid the economy is going to falter. That's somebody not cool under fire. He and some of his cabinet have attacked scientists and denied scientific research on issues like climate change and public health. But although he's cast out on science, President Trump has claimed to know the science. Uh, when he touted a drug, hydroxychloroquine, is it? Uh, he said yeah. it's just a feeling, just a feeling that he has. Yeah, I guess some guy went and saw the uh, similar compound on some uh, fish tank fluid and is not on the earthly plane after taking it. So. Uh -huh. Uh, words have consequences. Uh, yeah, this anti-science thing, uh, and I, you know, the chief leader, uh, we covered a lot of this war on science uh, that really started from even before, even before they got into the White House, they had targeted uh, and attempted to use civil service rules to force scientists out who had the audacity to go to international conferences on climate change. Uh, and so they have been – and this is another thing that's been my problem about Ukraine all the time, that coverage, is that while there was focus on the president's definitely criminal behavior regarding his attempt to engage the Ukraine as a way of coming after Vice President Biden, what's been largely missed is the attack on the engine room of the ship of state. And what I mean by that is the USDA, um, the fish and wildlife, the career scientists who are committed to the public interest, could have made a lot more in the private sector, and have years worked to protect the public health and create a body of public science. And so that has really been undercovered and it, and it underreported on. And I, that's the other thing that I have a, a concern about, is that they have made such a war on this essential part of the civil service that we're going to have succession planning issues. Uh, what young person, uh, especially after that 30-some-odd-day shutdown in the federal government, would want to go into federal service if they know that they're going to be reviled by the federal government that's employing them? And, you know, so, I mean, the other thing, too, I, I, I think people have to come to terms with here is we have more power than we realize. And that's another thing about this. Like, the, we, we need to, while this is a challenge— there's a tremendous range of opportunity here for people. And I'll just give you a simple example. So we see that the president's talking about returning back to work. He wants to turn the page back, get the economy back rolling again. Here's the thing. Most of us are staying home already. If people, people in this country could decide to have a general strike, Leonard, they could just say, you know what? You can sit down. We're going to wait for the scientists and the public health officials to tell us when it's safe to resume the economy. On a scale, that would be so effective that Mr. Blankton would find out he's got no juice. Donald Trump's got no juice. When they go to flick this thing on and enough Americans think it's not safe to go and they are informed enough and educated enough, the whole thing is going to be upended. Bob Henley is our guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. There was a, an article in today's uh, New York Times that suggested the president may be losing patience 
with Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, during a news conference a couple of days ago when the president referred to the, quote, deep state department, uh, Mr. Fauci uh, seemed to do the face palm. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, is there a question in there? Well, I just, I, I wonder whether anybody can, even somebody as respected as Anthony Fauci can go up against the president. Challenging. Well, and just well, I mean, it's, I guess you know there was much as kind of like find Waldo now at the press conference now. As Dr. Fauci's not there, then we'll spend how many hours of intrigue within the media? Where is he? Uh, meanwhile, we won't get the local alert about the ambulance squad needing volunteers. Um, but I digress. Um, this thing about the fixation on you know Donald Trump um, and the way that he kind of reinvents things as he goes along. It's important. I really do think Rachel Maddow made this point, and I think it was a brilliant one. They need to turn down the volume on the president for a while. They need to, and they're beginning to do it, they need to cut away from the foolishness. Unless he's giving civil defense coordinates about where you can go and receive the helicopter with your supplies, or where you can go to get blood, or where you can do something to make the situation better, we just need to turn it. He tends to attack reporters who ask questions he doesn't like. He, he went after NBC's Peter Alexander for asking what he would say to frightened Americans. Do you think that's intentional designed for his base? Well, I have had some exchange. I had an exchange with Donald Trump when he came down the gold staircase. So I was, and it depends if you catch him. Um, this was when he was, I uh, was working for CBS Money Watch and uh, he was re uh, releasing his uh, tax policies when he was running for president. And um, he was rolling out basically the same thing that uh, uh, George W. had done when they uh, cut um, taxes to try to encourage businesses to bring the money they had overseas in their tax avoidance schemes to bring it back to the United States. And he floated this thing, and then I, I questioned him about it, pointing out that the same thing had been done before and hadn't produced any kind of uh, uh, jobs or increase in income for workers, but had resulted in stock buybacks and in um, bonuses. So it's kind of like deja vu. It's exactly what ended up happening. And in that case, he kind of flattered me. So he cuts either way. And it's always about trying to maintain control of the room. And so he'll embarrass you if he thinks that you have in any way kind of taken it to a place where you're questioning his leadership. But if you ask the question in a way that seems to hold up his authority, then it'll go nice to you. It's dancing with dictators. Politico's Betsy Woodruff Swan has reported that William Barr has secretly approached Congress for legislation to suspend some constitutionally protected rights during this emergency. Uh, would Republicans and more important, the, the Supreme Court support such a move? Well, let's, let's, let's back up a bit because you just, I think, uh, identified an area that this whole question of incarceration and extraordinary uh, um, judicial powers, illegal powers, one of the problems we haven't covered and it needs to be discussed more. And is we don't have much time, what, so okay, cover it sorry. quickly. This question of the cover of uh, the issue of prisons is a lot of pressure to release compassion relief for prisoners who may be coronavirus uh, already infected. And there's a whole question there about trying to keep the correction system as healthy as possible for the employees and the people inside. Uh, I have no doubt that 
we in Barwood try to use any pretext to infringe on the rights of Americans. So no surprise there. We knew what we got when he was appointed. Now, state governments, hospitals, manufacturers, and others have urged President Trump to invoke the Defense Production Act. Um, he's actually done it, but uh, he says Venezuela, he doesn't want to actually use it because of Venezuela. <laughs> right. What he's talking about is this ideological notion that the government, and Cuomo did a very good job rebutting this today, where he pointed out that during the Second World War, the government basically commanded enterprises to do it. They made money, but they had the imprimatur of the government behind them. And so this is just really more sophistry and just more, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, uh, stroke his base. Uh, there's no there there. Uh, there's no doubt that this would be a great relief for businesses and get the economy running to have clear direction from the government about what essential is right now. Now, the president has joked about staying in office past the second term if he gets one. <laughs> Might Election Day be postponed if this continues into the fall? Uh, I Well, you know, we had I don't think that, that I think there'll be some pushback on that. Um, I do think I was looking forward to, I guess, the sixth cycle of the conventions that I would be a, a party to. And I don't know if those are going to come off. But uh, no, I don't think um, I don't think that'll happen. Um, and I think that it'll it'll certainly be an inflection point. Now, won't it be? Bob Henley can be found on Twitter at Stuck Nation. He also uh, has uh, he also uh, is all over the place. Uh, what did I say? <laughs> Salon, the chief leader, public right. radio. Anything else? Right. Yeah, I'm. How well, can people no, I mean, find you? And, and, well, I'm at Stuck Nation, and then also I am looking for cases around the country where workers are being asked to take risks that they shouldn't, um, or instances where unions are standing up for workers in this unprecedented challenge, and you can direct message me at Stuck Nation, which I might say was the Twitter handle I had long before I was told to stay at home. Bob, thank you so much for being on our show. We'll see you in Thanks, a couple, stay safe. few weeks. All right. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Lodge on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLodge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. You may have noticed that my voice sounds a bit different this week. In the interest of safety, I'll be broadcasting from my home for the foreseeable future. But we will continue to bring you live shows as long as we can and hope that we can provide you some comfort and interesting information during this exceedingly stressful time. Stay safe. We are preempted tomorrow for special programming, but we hope you can join us on Thursday when Sarah Teal and Harry Hursty will discuss their HBO documentary, Kill Chain, The Cyber War on America's Elections. We'll see you then.